0: Pacifico Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Razazan.
1: And I am Mira Nabulsi.
0: After months of a street protest, people in Sudan finally got rid of the country's longtime dictator, Omar al-Bashir. But the celebration soon turned into anger when they realized one military rule is replaced by another. As one protester put it, we did not protest to replace one thief with another. So what's next for Sudan? We'll put this question to Khaled Madani, an associate professor of political science and Islamic studies at McGill University in Canada. And with Israeli elections topping the headlines in the past few days, we'll get a Palestinian view on the elections from the Jerusalem-based writer Boudour Hassan. Stay with us. (music) Nearly three decades after Omar al-Bashir came to power, The regime faced a formidable challenge posed by a fresh wave of unrest that started in northeastern city of Atbara on December 19th of last year. Protests, which first erupted over a government decision to triple the price of bread, swiftly escalated into anti-government rallies, marches, and work stoppages. On April 6th, on the anniversary of the nonviolent uprising that removed the dictator Jafar Nomeiri in 1985, the protests in Sudan reached a watershed moment. The protesters turned up the heat on the government by camping outside of the army headquarters in Khartoum, which also houses al-Bashir's resident, calling on the army to help them ouster the country's longtime dictator. On Wednesday, April 11th, the Defense Minister Awad ibn Auf announced that Omar al-Bashir had been ousted and arrested by the military. He added that the army would oversee a two-year transitional period followed by elections and that a three-month state of emergency was being put in place, with a nighttime curfew starting immediately. So what's next for Sudan? To get a clarity on the rapidly changing situation in that country, Shahram Aghamir spoke with Khaled Madani, an associate professor of political science and Islamic studies at McGill University in Canada.
2: Khaled, why don't we start by talking about the key points in the announcement made by Vice President and Defense Minister General Ibn Auf on Thursday, yes. April 10th, where he declared the quote-unquote toppling of the regime and formation of a military-led transitional government which would rule Sudan for two years? Yes, well, there are a
3: number of important points. The first, of course, being, as you mentioned, that there would be the establishment of a military transitional council that would consist of people from the military oversee what he said is a transition to quote-unquote free and fair elections in two years. That is extremely important. Another uh, very important point uh, having to do with the ouster of Omar Bashir himself is that he suggested or rather directly indicated that the reason, and he explained the reason for this, what I call an internal coup, was that Omar Bashir had insisted on using a great deal of violence to stop the protest and mobilization, and in particular the sit-in that has been ongoing for almost six days now in front of the army headquarters. And Awad ibn al-A'uf, who is now, of course, the de facto head of state and the military leader of the country, suggested that the army decided that they disagreed with him in terms of the use of violence to quell the protest and disperse the sit-in protesters. And that was one of the main reasons that they ousted him. He also said another important point is that that Omar Bashir is now in, quote-unquote, a safe location which, of course, has its own implications for the future of Omar Bashir himself and, of course, of the military regime, in terms of whether he would be given to international authorities and, in particular, the International Criminal Court that has indicted him for war crimes. So it's a very important aspect of the statement that he made, which was really important. Another important statement that hasn't been highlighted is that he said that this uh, military transitional council would consist of, of course, the Sudan Armed Forces, of which, he, of course, he's is the, the head, but also of the main, basically, security apparatuses of the state, that it would include the National Intelligence and Security Services, headed by Salah Ghosh. And he also suggested that it would include the paramilitary security forces of the rapid support forces headed by Hemiti in the Sudan. It basically was a statement that represented, uh, in his own words as well, the basically objectives of what in Sudan is called the Supreme Intelligence Committee of the Sudan Armed Forces, which included, of course, the, includes the Sudan Armed Forces, it includes the, intelligence apparatus linked to the state and even the paramilitary forces. So those are some of the essential points that came with the statement uh, that he made. The points that he did not make, of course, are equally important, if not more important, and that is, number one, he did not acknowledge that there would be the participation in this interim period of any of the political parties, let alone the members of the opposition with the Sudanese Professional Association. So so there is no indication that there would be any dialogue or any incorporation of the main actors that are now representing the opposition and, of course, represent the millions who are protesting across the country against what most Sudanese consider an internal military coup that has replaced one military leader... For another. So, those are some of the important points that he said, but also the key points that he made sure not to point out. And those are the reasons why you have the continuation of the protest and mobilization. Uh, Most Sudanese across the country, not only in the capital city of Khartoum, are now calling for the persistence and sustainability of these uh, protests and sit-ins, not only in Khartoum, but throughout the country, in order to, in their own terms, wage a second coup. That is that, as many protesters now are chanting, that the revolution is not over, and some are even chanting that the revolution has only now begun.
2: How have the opposition groups such as Sudanese Professional Association, SPA, And other anti-government groups, such as Griefna resistance movement, reacted to the announcement.
3: They uh, reacted to the announcement almost immediately. The Sudanese Professional Association went to the sit-in. That is the kind of millions of protesters that now are uh, waging a sit-in in in front of the headquarters of the Sudan armed forces. And they, number one, uh, completely rejected the statement by Awad ibn uh, they said that their demands were very clear, and that is that uh, not only was their demand centered around the ouster of Umar Bashir, but they emphasized that throughout the, these uh, four months-long protest, they had one central demand and priority, and that was the dismantling and overthrow of the entire regime and its uh, loyalists. And so they made it very clear from the beginning, the Sudanese Professional Association, that they were calling for the ouster of the entire regime, not Omar Bashir, without any conditions. That uh, was the number one priority, number one demand. And the second demand that they made, uh, that they clarified uh, once again and reiterated, was that they were uh, not going to accept another military regime that would undermine the aspirations of the sudanese people and they reiterated that their important demand of course is to have an interim government that is uh, exclusively composed of civilians civilian politicians and representatives of the opposition and technocrats that would oversee the, the a four-year transition period to multi-party democracy they did say that, They were willing to have a dialogue with certain segments of the military in terms of how that transition would take place, but that they insisted that it would have to be a civilian government that would oversee and be responsible for overseeing a transition to multi-party democracy. And so there was a full rejection in terms of the statement of the Sudanese professional associations. And in addition to that, of course, they called for the continued protest of the for the protesters and the mobilization against the regime and they called upon the protesters to continue their marches continue their sit-ins and uh, to strike not only in the greater Khartoum area but throughout the region. And what we see now, of course, is, uh, and it's, this is very important, as that following the statement, immediately you had even a larger number of people flowing into the square, the Maidan, in front of the Sudanese armed headquarters, making sure to send a clear message that they would not tolerate basically what is an internal coup and the consolidation of the military regime and the ruling party. Under the guise of um, ousting uh, one individual. That is, that they refuse to countenance the removal of one thief, as the protesters have been chanting, for yet another thief. And so it's an unequivocal opposition to the statement and to even giving any legitimacy to this revolutionary or transition, uh, rather the military transitional council. Uh, the other coalition that is extremely important in terms of the opposition is the, the political parties and associations that are associated along with the Sudanese professional associations under the banner of the Declaration of Freedom of Change. This is the larger umbrella group that was established in January of this year that incorporates not only the Sudanese Professional Association, but also the major political parties in opposition and the youth associations that you mentioned, which are also signatories to this larger umbrella of the opposition. That includes the youth organization that you mentioned, Girifna, but also the other key youth movement and organization that is known as Sudan Change Now. Uh, And so that coalition that consists of the larger opposition also quickly came out publicly uh, put forth a statement both in social media in terms of uh, distributing pamphlets and and their memorandum also really echoing the opposition that the Sunni Professional Association has put forth and they also unequivocally oppose the legitimacy of this Military Transitional Council and the, uh, our Dibna Uf himself.
2: Clearly, General Uf's view of the situation is different from the opposition. He talks about the toppling of the regime. Clearly, his, his definition of a regime is, is very different from the opposition. Maybe you can break it down for us and help us understand who is in charge of Sudan now. I can only imagine it's a collective leadership. These are very much the people who have been in charge.
3: Absolutely. There's no question. I mean, really, the uh, you know, for Sudanese who know, of course, their politics full well, they're very clear about the fact that this is uh, basically a regime that is missing only one individual, and that is Omar Bashir. But all of the stalwarts of the regime, of what was formerly known as the Bashir regime, are still there. Uh, you have, of course, the people in charge are uh, Aud ibn Oof himself, who was appointed by Omar Bashir as defense minister. He also has a long history of having been the head of intelligence of the Sudan Armed Forces, also having been appointed by Omar Bashir in the past. Uh, you have also, of course, the very powerful uh, spy or chief of intelligence, Salah Ghosh, who's the head of the National Intelligence Security Service. He's also part of this regime. And you have Hamiti, of course, who is the head of the these paramilitary forces, security forces that are linked to the regime. So the same major characters, of course, remain. Uh, it is, as Sudanese activists are, have made very clear, only a cosmetic change that replaces one face with another, or rather oust Umar Bashir from that regime and those institutions that continue and have continued to uh, rule the country for three decades, of course, uh, through authoritarianism, repression, and a great deal of violence against any form of opposition. They also make it clear that these are all, uh, without exception, really, some of the most important founders of uh, or members of the early Islamist movement that was headed by Hassan Turabi. In fact, almost without exception, all of them have been involved with the, the real expansion of, and trying to popularize the Islamist movement Movement before it took power in 1989. And all of them following the coup of 1989, the Islamist-backed coup of Omar Bashir, immediately were appointed into high position in the military and the security forces. So these are the same individuals that have essentially been part of the regime and that have been ruling Sudan in conjunction with with Omar Bashir for three decades. Uh, It's important to emphasize that because it uh, really helps to explain the rage that is ongoing in Sudan and the continued insistence on the part of the activists and protesters who've been fighting this regime basically for four months, their commitment to the overthrow of what they believe is the regime and the institutions of uh, this authoritarian regime. So it is not something that uh, Sudanese are unaware of, obviously, and this is why they are very much opposed to Awad Ibn hope. I do want to mention that for some of your listeners, they may not be familiar with this new leader. And one of the important points to explain, and many activists have made this very clear, and that is that he is not equally brutal, if not even more brutal than Omar Bashir, which is, of course, hard to, hard to imagine. But this is an individual that has been uh, sanctioned by the United States and the International Criminal Court for violations of human rights and is associated with, of course, of uh, crimes against humanity and war crimes, uh, when he was essentially the head of the intelligence of the Sudan Armed Forces between 2003 and 2007. And he was primarily responsible for issuing directives to militias, especially the Janjaweed militias in Darfur, that were responsible for ethnic cleansing in that region of Sudan and that resulted in the death Death and killing of upwards of 300,000 Darfurians in Sudan and the displacement of almost 2 million Darfurians. Mm. So he is really, from the perspective of Sudanese activist, a brutal dictator who has not only blood on his hand, but by any estimation is essentially a war criminal.
2: This is not going to be an autocracy. It's going to be a collective leadership of these notorious leaders who have been taking part in these crimes, essentially running state institutions even before these developments?
3: I think that they are a little bit confounded right now. I have to be quite clear about it. Uh, One of the reasons the statement did not actually mention individuals that would be manning or compose this transitional military council is that by all accounts, and and sources in Sudan have informed me personally, that there is a great deal of divisions even among the upper ranks of the Sudan armed forces. Uh, That is, right now, there are intense negotiations between these officers uh, at the higher rank uh, of the Sudan armed forces in terms of Uh, what individuals would actually make up this transitional council. So you have not only a rift and, and deep divisions between the upper ranks of the military and middle and and lower ranking officers, which really is one of the main reasons that uh, Bashir was ousted, in order to preserve the unity and integrity, so to speak, of the Sudanese forces. But at the same time, they have divisions between themselves. And this is something that we have to follow closely, because who gets appointed to the transitional military council Mm -hmm. will let us know a little bit more about the composition of this military regime. But the most important point, point for now to really emphasize is that these are all uh, individuals that are very loyal to each other for instrumental reasons. Uh, Many of them, the majority of them, actually have been indicted by the International Criminal Court. uh, And they feel that their destiny is really intertwined and their survival is intertwined with each other. And this is the reasons they preempted any kind of dismantling of the institutions of the regime that is, of course, uh, the central demand of the protesters protesting right now.
2: Given the history of the uprisings in Egypt, Tunisia, Yemen, and some other countries in the region, and the way ruling blocs in those countries responded to the mass protests by removing just a handful of individuals from office in an attempt to maintain the status quo, was the Sudanese protest movement surprised by this recent development in their country?
3: Absolutely not. I want to be very clear that the Sudanese Professional Association, I think I've mentioned in this program before, and the youth movements in particular, even more so than the the political parties, have been calculating and strategizing in terms of what would make this kind of mobilization against authoritarianism successful. And in doing so, not only did they really examine and work towards the expansion of the mobilization and protest across regions and across social classes, they also um, really theorized the different types of scenarios that would occur. And one of is, uh, and it's very important to point out, as I have written and others, of course, scholars have written in a kind of more academic context, for activists, in particular the Sunni's Professional Association and the youth movements, it has not come as a surprise that there would be an effort to upgrade authoritarianism, so to speak, in academic jargon, or to consolidate authoritarianism, that is to basically oust one individual and replace him with, with another that has been historically, is part of the regime and its institutions, as happened in Egypt, as happening so far in Algeria. This kind of scenario has been one that is something that has been discussed and talked about. And even before this latest statement, the Sudanese Professional Association had cautioned those who are sitting in the, the hundreds of thousands, and some say millions, sitting in in front of the of Sudanese Armed Forces headquarters, that it was likely that this kind of scenario would happen. And you can see this, by the way, in social media before even the protests became as large as they have been, and even before the sit-in that's been ongoing for the past six days, they had pamphlets and signs telling protesters that do not be fooled if there was by any chance an announcement by either Bashir or anyone in the military that Bashir was going to step down and the military was going to replace him with someone else. And they insisted on sending this message to protesters and saying in Arabic, quote unquote, and I'm quoting here, that this kind of scenario would in no way indicate that victory has come to us. And this is why you find that after this statement, no protesters left their locations. Uh, they continued to protest and to wage their sit-in and to make it clear that their demand was unequivocal and unconditional, and that was the institution of the regime and and the people who are in charge or heading this regime have to be removed. There has to be a transition that is composed of individuals who are not affiliated with not only the Islamist movement, but also even, some say, kind of the old guard of the political parties. It will be composed of independent technocrats representing the different forces from the opposition in a transition of four years that would oversee multi-party democracy. And this is why this kind of scenario had been calculated. And this is why you now see that the protests have, in fact, expanded. Today, you had larger protests and larger numbers in front of the army headquarters, uh, larger numbers than you even had on April 6, when the the sit-in first began.
2: Remind us who these protesters are. Has there been a change in the makeup of classes and social groups participating in these protests after four months of upheaval?
3: Yes absolutely over time, I think that when I first uh, spoke to you in this program it was in the first month of the protest if, if I'm correct and in that first month uh, there was a question and I had asked you had asked it of me and uh, I had asked it of myself and that, that is to what extent would the expansion of these uh, protests include and encompass uh, not only the different regions but if different social groups It really was a question mark I remember on this program, saying that the success of uh, this kind of mobilization and protest would depend not only on the sustainability, but also on the success of the leaders of these protests, the success in terms of them really being able to expand the protest across social classes. In the past uh, three months, there is absolutely no question that the leaders of these protests or those who have been coordinating, in particular the Sudanese Professional Association, has uh, registered remarkable success in expanding this movement from its middle-class base, so to speak, uh, not only across the regions, but across working-class neighborhoods and the poorer quarters of the Greater Khartoum area. Those areas, particularly the working-class areas of Greater Khartoum, you know, neighborhoods such as uh, Burri in Khartoum North, uh, Nubawi in Umdurman, these are solid working-class neighborhoods, and they have actually been the ones that have been the most important sites of protest, and the ones that have sustained Protest in the case of Burri, uh, literally on a daily basis. In the case of Wad in this, in the town of Umdurman, each Friday, the, without fail, they have gone to the streets. So what began essentially, at least in Khartoum. What began as a middle class movement has not only expanded into the working class neighborhoods of Greater Khartoum, uh, those working class neighborhoods and uh, other neighborhoods surrounding the Greater Khartoum areas have been actually and have played the greatest role in sustaining the protest. And this is really something that, even I think that having spoken to them, some of the leaders of the Sudanese professional associations were not 100% sure would actually materialize. What we see even more recently, by the way, and this is also important is that you have some of the wealthiest quarters and neighborhoods of the greater Khartoum joining the protest. Some of the most you know, wealthiest business families and entities and corporations in the private sector, those that are not actually uh, linked uh, to the regime, which are few, have not only joined the protest and the mobilization, they have now also provided services, they provided food, they provided water. Uh, and so this is an absolute remarkable expansion in terms of its uh, the kind of the the social basis of this movement. And I don't think that you necessarily see that kind of expansion across social classes in uh, the other Arab countries so far. Although one has to say that in Algeria, there's been a a remarkable expansion of across regions, which is something that is extremely uh, extremely notable. So in that sense, there are similarities, but I would say the Sudanese Professional Association has been remarkably successful in expanding these protests across regions, which is been, uh, very significant, and also throughout the social stratum and social segments of societies. You also have the incorporation or the joining in by traditionally Sufi organizations that have been in general supporting the Islamist regime. And these include a number of very influential Sufi Muslim, as we call them in Sudan, and organizations that have joined wholeheartedly not only in the marches, but also now in the sit-in in front of the army headquarters.
2: What can you tell us about the organizational characteristics and leadership of the protest movement in Sudan?
3: Uh, Well, I think that it's very important to ask this question for a number of reasons. And one of the most important ones is that you see in the coverage of Sudan, because there is insistence on comparing Sudan, I think, to other Arab countries, uh, a real insistence or at least a bias towards this notion that the uh, opposition is somehow weak. Even some Sudanese analysts, I would argue, have made that claim, that uh, there is really no one to speak to, that uh, a transition, a civilian transition, would be weakened by the fact that you have weak political parties and a weak opposition. And I would like to argue that that's the furthest thing from the truth. Oftentimes, the way that political parties in the Arab world are circumscribed, uh, whether it's in Egypt or Algeria, and how civil society is, of course, also delimited by the authoritarian policies of Arab regimes, gives one the impression that even in Sudan that that is the case. And that is not true. I think the Sunni Professional Association has demonstrated very clearly that they are an extremely legitimate, extremely even powerful, and of course, independent opposition movement. I think that by January of this year, it was very clear that they were joined wholeheartedly by the majority, in fact, all of the main opposition political parties, Under the banner of the Declaration of Freedom of Change, uh, you have one side, uh, an opposition coalition that is called Sudan Call or Nida'a Sudan that includes the Ummah Party and two important insurgent organizations from Dat4. That's very important. It also includes the Sudan uh, Congress Party. Uh, You also have the, the National Consensus Forces that includes the Communist Party, a very important party in the opposition. And all of these have come together Uh, with the Sudanese Professional Association in order to uh, make it clear uh, to the Sudanese population, first and foremost, that there were Legitimate, independent political parties and civil society organizations that are more than capable of overseeing a transition to a civilian government and multi-party democracy. This is an extremely important point because, in the coverage of Sudan and in even uh, because of its linkages to the Arab uprisings and other Arab countries, there, this aspect is underestimated and it's a source of concern for those who may, you know, wish upon Sudan some form of democracy or consolidating democracy, but are wary of the fact that perhaps there is a a deep state of the kind of that is so authoritarian and dictatorial that it has decimated civil society and political party opposition. That is not the case in Sudan. I did want to reiterate what I did in previous programs, and that is, in this case, Sudan, I think that uh, should be compared to African countries that have had, uh, let's say, for lack of a better term, uh, weaker states, vis-a-vis their civil society counterparts and have been successful in transitioning to multi-party democracy. It is not a surprise that at the moment we don't see any statement in support of the demonstrations from the Arab League. But just today, the African Union actually put forth a statement criticizing very directly the statement of Awadib oath and stating that, quote unquote, that this was an inappropriate response to the aspirations of the Sudanese people and the mobilization of civil society towards democratization. So what we see now is actually the African Union that is taking a position in opposition to this internal coup that we see in Mm -hmm. the Sudan.
2: You have argued that the survival of the Sudanese regime is invariably tied to the loyalty of its coercive apparatus, military, police, security forces, and the militia. The strategy of the opposition seems to have been hinged on splits within the military hence seeing a role for military in facilitating a transition of power. Going forward, how will that
3: strategy look? Well, uh, that's a really important question because, uh, you know, uh, one of the key questions from the very beginning of the demonstrations was, what was the end game, in other words? What was the ultimate plan on the part of the opposition and the Sudanese uh, Professional Association? and those uh, political parties and organizations that uh, signed the Declaration of Freedom and Change. It was not from the beginning just uh, to organize spontaneous street protests, sit-ins and general strikes. I think I had mentioned in a previous program that there were a variety of different modes of Contention, mobilization that were carefully orchestrated and, and coordinated by the Sunni's Professional Association, beginning with marches, beginning with street protests, a series of general strikes and sit-ins in throughout Khartoum and throughout the the country in the different regions. And the ultimate end game and strategy was, of course, to uh, attempt to replicate the previous democratic experiments and successes of the past of 1964 when. An uprising in Sudan overthrew a military dictatorship and brought in a civilian government in 1985, when the, another popular uprising by Sudanese overthrew the dictatorial regime of Jafar al and brought in, of course, not only a civilian government, but a multi-party democracy that was, of course, then ousted by the Islamist-backed regime of Omar bashir in the summer of 1989. So that template and that historical precedent was very much in the mind and the planning of the Sudanese professionals association and the opposition and that of course included in both cases uh, eliciting and encouraging members especially the middle ranking and lower ranking officers of the Sudan armed forces to join the protesters and that is to truly become a national army or rather the, an army of the people and uh, help to oversee not only to oust yet another authoritarian uh, leader, but also to oversee the establishment of an interim civilian government that would then draft a constitution and prepare the country for multi-party election. And so when April 6th occurred, that date was not a coincidence. April 6th, of course, is the anniversary, Sudanese know, of the 1985 Intifada that overthrew the authoritarian regime of Jafar al-Nimeri. So that sit-in catalyzed, really or represented the ultimate strategy of the opposition. The idea being you sit, uh, you have millions sitting on the square in front of the, the Sudan Armed Forces General Command and you over time uh, demonstrate in sheer numbers and, of course, energy that there was a wide consensus in, in Sudanese civil society that this authoritarian regime must go and that the army should back the aspirations of these protesters. And that's exactly what began to happen. Only two days into the sit-in, you begin to see not only defections among middle and lower ranking mil- military officers, but as you know by now, I think it's been widely covered, you have uh, middle and lower ranking mil- military officers not only protecting the sit-in and the protesters, those who are in the, in the square, from the security and intelligence forces of the regime, but in at least two important cases, actually entering in, into violent altercations with uh, the national intelligence and security forces that are linked to the regime. That becomes a real turning point and because it changes the decision making and calculations of the regime itself. It is really at that point that Awad ibn Of and those with him decide that Umar Bashir may indeed be a liability. That is, that either Umar Bashir goes and is ousted, or the entire regime and its institutions would fall in the wake of this revolutionary moment and uprising.
0: Khaled Madani is an associate professor of political science and Islamic studies at McGill University. He spoke with Shahram al-Ramir from Montreal, Canada. You can listen to the full interview on Voices of the Middle East and North Africa iTunes page, where you can also subscribe to the show. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
3: يلا حان الأوان هذا وقت الشباب هذا وقت الرجال هذا وقت الأسود التي تمسح حبال نحن كويت قوة تقطت حرب الجبال إلى متى نخان إلى متى من حكم ديكتاتوري النهان في هذا الأرض سلما كما تدين تدان في هذا الأرض كما تعين تعان فقد حان الأوان إلى قتل النظام ومن عش جبان فقد راد الظلام إلى متى نكون فقط
4: قوم الكلام إلى On Tuesday,
1: April 9th, over 6 million Israeli voters headed to polling stations to choose their next government in a race that displayed... All shades of right-wing blocs in Israel. Results, as of Thursday evening, indicate that incumbent Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is leading. His main rival, the Blue and White Alliance, led by former chief of the Israeli army, Benny Gantz, scored the same number of seats. But with most right-wing and ultra-Orthodox parties vowing to ally with Netanyahu, Gantz conceded the race even before the end of ballot counting. Pundits have mourned the Israeli left, predicting perhaps what could really be the final nail in the coffin of the two-state solution. With a total of 65 seats out of 120 in the Israeli parliament, the Knesset, Netanyahu is now expected to form what's considered the most right-wing and ultra-Orthodox government Israel has ever seen. In the lead up to the election, Palestinian citizens of Israel were engaged in a heated debate about whether they should participate in the election. Although eligible to vote, many decided not to. Others voted in an attempt to To block the rise of the Zionist far right. To get a better understanding of what's going on in the Palestinian community inside Israel, I spoke with Budur Hassan. She is a Palestinian writer and a legal researcher at the Jerusalem Legal Aid Center. I asked if election results make any difference for the Palestinians.
4: For Palestinians, it does really make a little difference because in terms of their militarism, their uh, preparedness to attack Palestinians in Gaza, the two are on the same line. In fact, Gantz used his record as a military commander as something to his credit when he launched his elections campaign. But uh, we should also look at it in different ways, not just how it affects Palestinians, but also how it reflects on the developments and the dynamics of the Israeli society, I think, because it's really important for us to understand the supposed contradictions within the Israeli society, also to understand how we as Palestinians should move forward. Because as you said, while it does really make little difference, it also gives us an indication to the strength of Netanyahu and to his popularity, that even despite the fact that three military commanders, organized together with another media personality, who's Yair Lapid, to form this blue and white coalition movement that is born out of the Israeli military establishment, of the Israeli army, in order to challenge Netanyahu, in order to end his rule. Because that was the main uniting line of these four, that we want to end Netanyahu. They didn't really rely on any ideology per se. Their main ideology, anyone but Netanyahu. And they promoted themselves as the only ones capable of defeating Netanyahu, and they played the army card. If we look at their discourse, as I said earlier, it was a very militaristic, ultra-masculine, nationalistic discourse that used even the tone and the discourse and the terminology that they used was very inspired by militarism and by the army to promote themselves as the strong men who can constitute a strong alternative to Netanyahu. So this is precisely what we had at stake. From the one hand, you have Netanyahu and his right-wing Jewish nationalist supporters and also ultra-Orthodox supporters and his Likud party. And on the other hand, you had this military establishment-supported coalition that wanted to supposedly offer an alternative. But it also was never and is not competition or a contest between right and center as it was promoted in the Israeli media, because all the time we've had how it's about the center-right versus the center-left. Because, let's face it, Benny Gantz and Ashkenazi and Lapid are not center left. They are not center at all. Their policies, in fact, when it comes to Gaza, when it comes to repression of Palestinians, even when it comes to the rights of Palestinians in the West Bank, are very right-wing. Even when they talk about not annexing the West Bank, they don't talk about it out of uh, because they want to grant Palestinians their rights, but because they only see Palestinians as a problem that they need to somehow solve. So this is the bottom line, is we had this contest between two different types of right wing. And as we saw, even despite the military putting its weight behind this new coalition, it failed to secure the necessary alliance to beat Netanyahu, and it will be a minority, it will be an opposition, and Netanyahu will definitely be able to form the government, at least for the next year mm-hmm. until his indictment comes goes over.
1: And speaking of that, the Israeli justice ministry is still considering an indictment of Netanyahu. What does that say about the Israeli society right now when for the fifth time they vote for Netanyahu despite the corruption charges that he's facing?
4: Yeah, look, it's probably ironic, but um, his popularity even increased after the talk about indictment. He used it in his favor. He used it to present himself as somehow anti-establishment. He used it to say, look, the judiciary is launching a witch hunt against me, against my family. He was very dramatic in portraying how this has affected his beloved wife and children. So he kind of used his... populist uh, repertoire in order to gain support, in order to use an apparently negative event in order to actually increase his popularity. And people don't really care about the indictment of Netanyahu, nor do they care about corruption. They saw that Netanyahu, what he has done over the last decade is that he has made their country more successful, that he's made it more stable in their eyes, and plus the last gift that he received Trump in the form of the recognition of Israel's sovereignty over the Golan Heights was massive. He used it in his elections campaign. He was using the pictures and the declarations of Trump during pretty much most of his advertisements and ads on YouTube and everywhere when Trump recognized the movement of the embassy to Jerusalem. Also, he used the recognition of Israel's sovereignty over the Golan to see that Look, I've managed to secure for you what no other president or prime minister has done before. So what I've done, no one has done before me and this made him extremely popular. And also the other reason is that we're talking about an extremely right-wing society, the Israeli society. Mm-hmm. If you want to win more votes, it's enough to be racist. It's enough to talk about how Arabs go to vote in droves. It's enough to talk about how you are going to even escalate annexation and turn it from de facto annexation into de-yuri de annexation. So the more you promote yourself as anti-Palestinian, as masculine, as this kind of strong man, as the one who manages to increase Israel's strength, the more you're going to gain vote. And Netanyahu, let's face it, is probably world champion in, in being able to be more racist than anyone else.
1: So let's talk about uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel and their role in this election. They are eligible to vote, but money chose not to vote this year. In fact, early exit polls showed a low turnout of less than 50 percent this election. But some sources suggested that the turnout increased towards the end of the voting day Tuesday. Why is that?
4: Yeah. So in terms of the turnout, yes, it was until 8 p.m. It was extremely low. It was less than 50 percent. But in the last two hours, the supporters of the parties and local organizers, including uh, imams in mosques and popular figures kind of uh, sent a last uh, gasp prayer or plea for people to go and vote, even using emotional language in order to kind of encourage people to vote. Some would say even blackmail people into voting. And it somehow barely, just barely worked. So the two main lists that participated in the elections, on the one hand, the Hadash and the change list led by uh, Ahmad Tibi on the one hand, and on the other hand, the Balad and the Islamic list, they both managed to sneak in, one with six seats in the parliament, the other with four. But the turnout says a lot about what Palestinians in Israel don't want to go to participate in elections. So we can divide it into, I think, three parts. First of all, you have those who ideologically boycott the elections and who have always done that. So they oppose the elections out of principled reasons, because we believe that participating in the elections in itself is going to grant a leaf of legitimacy to the uh, Israeli system. And we don't want to participate in this facade of democracy because we don't believe in it anyway. And we believe that there are other ways and other platforms in which we can mobilize in order to oppose. Israeli policies and in order to resist Israeli colonialism. And I have to admit that this uh, pool or this section of those who didn't vote is a minority. So, this section of people who broke it out of ideological reasons mm-hmm. are a minority. And then you have the second segment of people who boycotted the elections or who didn't participate in the elections because they were angry about the joint list. They were angry about the the dissolution of the joint list. They were angry that Palestinian parties didn't unite in one coalition and were rather divided. They were angry with the way the Palestinian parties handled themselves during the elections with the, all the struggle over who will get to uh, more seats and how the rotation, the whole rotation will go on. Can so you just say something this, about this whole rotation? I'm not going to explain it all mm-hmm. because it's too long. Yeah. But the, the the agreement was is for the for the first two years we're going to have certain members, and for the second term or the second half of these four years we will exchange, so we will have additional members in order to at least 18 or 19 people can sneak in and can get their opportunity. So parties didn't really abide by this deal mm-hmm. and uh, didn't respect it. And there were uh, ugly confrontations between the parties, which led Palestinians to think that what these guys uh, are more concerned with are just the seats rather than actually serving us. So they kind of were playing musical chairs rather than being concerned about supporting us as a people. And this is why they were so angry. And then the reason why the Joint List couldn't rebuild itself and couldn't participate again as a Joint List is that one of the members of the Joint List, Ahmad Tibi, who is, uh, again, a very populist figure, said that I can get many more votes if I go alone. And then he kind of destroyed the whole thing. But then again, somehow they managed to participate, represent two different lists. But this whole, as I said, this whole saga really jeopardized their legitimacy in the eyes of the people. And and this is so this is the anger is the second reason. The third reason, many people call it apathy. They, they say that people don't care anymore. I think that it's superficial to call it just apathy. I think it's also disillusionment, disillusionment with the political system as a whole, with the Israeli political system, with the electoral system as a whole, disillusionment with the parties. And yes, apathy in a sense, because people are tired, are bored. They think that their voices have not been heard. And I do think that if you as a political representative, despite putting so much efforts or trying to put so much efforts in campaigning, in organizing, In mobilizing, if you can't convince people to get over or to get rid of their apathy in order to vote for you, you're doing something wrong. If you can't do something to change this apathy that you describe it as an apathy, to put an end to the disillusionment, to offer people a better alternative, then they're not going to simply vote for you. And this is what we've seen. People, in a sense, it was some I won't call it a red card, but perhaps a yellow card for the Palestinian parties in the Knesset, or some even would call it a red card. This was a punishment.
1: But there are some people who also went out and voted. What are some of the reasons for people who are in favor of voting? What are some of the political justifications, let's say, people give for why they think participating in the Israeli electoral politics is effective in their opinion?
4: I think the main reason why people went to vote is the fear of the right wing. And even when the parties try to convince people to go and vote, this is the argument that they use. If you don't vote for us, the right wing is going to control everything. So this is, I think, fear of the right. And I think it's it's legitimate, this fear, right? Uh, I do not think that uh, voting in elections is going to change this map Dramatically, but I do think that this fear is legitimate. But yeah, this was the main reason why people went to vote, especially for the Palestinian parties. Other reason, where obviously th- there are other than the political reason, we can also not ignore that many people think about more th- the everyday troubles mm-hmm. that they uh, have mm-hmm. about their social, economic rights, about services, about infrastructure, about planning and construction issues. So about what we. Can say everyday plight or everyday problems, which are definitely interconnected to the political mm. question, because you can't separate uh, one from the other. This some, is one of the numbers, main reasons. Uh, also that
1: I saw suggests that about thirty percent of the Arab Palestinian voters chose zionist parties maybe explain why people voted that way
4: yeah so you have about 39000s who voted for merits which is the left wing zionist liberal zionist party which is perhaps the most kind of at least socially And economically, it's the most social and economically progressive Israeli party. In terms of politics, it kind of has this, uh, you know, liberal Zionist approach, which is still, for many, it's much more tolerable than what the labor offers. And actually, it was the votes of the Palestinians who helped Meretz get over the electoral threshold. In addition to Meretz, you have also a significant number of Palestinians who voted for Shas, which is the ultra-Orthodox Jewish Mm -hmm. party, Mm -hmm. which might sound extremely extremely ironic. Oh, and by the way, we we should also point out that Mm -hmm. it was ultra-Orthodox Jewish parties who were the biggest winners of this whole election, because Mm -hmm. they now have 16 seats, they will be part of the government, they can take whatever ministries they want, and they want the interior ministry, they want the ministry of finance, they want uh, perhaps the ministry of education as well. So they want the ministries that they care about. And always kind of we try to wrap our heads about how on earth Will Palestinians in the villages vote for Shas? And the easy answer is that Shas's program is very heavily dependent on social and economic issues because they represent the Sephardim, the Jews from Arab origin who also happens to be on the lower scale of the uh, Israeli social spectrum they are also among the poorest mm-hmm. communities within the Israeli society which which leads some perhaps to identify some palestinians to identify because we say at least in terms of our class situation we belong to the same class so if, if we vote for shas we can uh, support our social and economic issues which and and we can't deny that some people, this is their main concern. And also there were obviously who who's voted for uh, Zionist parties, for blue and white, for Labour. Th- there are different reasons why. I think some would claim that we want a party representing us in government because we will be stronger uh, this way. And also we have... Uh, the Palestinian Druze community, many of whom also support clearly Zionist parties, including right-wing and uh, Jewish and uh, Zionist nationalist parties. So it it is when we talk about Palestinians in Israel, we can't talk about one bloc. We talk about a very diverse society. But Mm -hmm. one also can't deny that this problem, this confusion of identity, one of the main groups responsible for it is the Palestinian political leadership in Israel. Because when you, as a political leadership, fail to provide alternatives, when you fail to convince people that you've done anything for them, when you are more concerned about seats than you are concerned about helping the people, when you, for years, all that you have to offer is scaring people from the right instead of actually fulfilling something and not just in the Knesset. because many people say why don't we see these people only when it comes to elections time what happens during those four or three or two years why do they only care about us when it's time to get our votes so if you don't have effective significant and serious work on the ground working with people on the ground and also connecting political social and economic and national issues this is the inevitable result and when we talk about Palestinian Palestinians in Israel we have to mention that this is a society that has been absolutely wrecked by the, by violence by internal violence by gender violence against women by almost daily shooting in Palestinian villages due to poverty due to so many other problems due to desperation And due to simply violence has wreaked havoc in in, in our society. So we're talking about an incredibly desperate, divided and fragmented society. And instead of offering us hope or a venue, our political leadership is busy quarreling
1: over seats. Mm-hmm. Uh, Budur, this basically was kind of uh, my last question to you, uh, which is the prospects of Palestinian political work inside Israel. You're clearly very skeptical of the work Palestinian legislators have been able to do inside uh, the Knesset. In this past, Knesset, they had 13 seats. Now we're talking about around uh, 10 seats. About 10. they the- never yeah. been a part of a governing coalition. So what prospects can we see, in your opinion? You clearly are saying there is massive, massive needs for political work in the Palestinian community inside Israel.
4: There needs to be a transition, a shift on how we work. There is a political sciences professor, uh, Asad Ghanim, who called on Palestinian legislators to withdraw from the Knesset and to start from scratch working on the ground with people. And I tend to agree with this point. I think that's the... I know it won't happen, by the way, they are not going to do it. And now what other prospects, what other things that we can do and outside of the Knesset? Because I'm really, if I was skeptical before about our prospects of doing anything in the Knesset, even look, even just uh, very small reforms, you know, you can do small things here and there, change some policies or in terms of budgets and budget allocation, in terms of changing certain master plans. This you can probably do, but that's the maximum that you can do. What we have to really think about is Palestinian Citizen Israel has something called the follow up committee. The local follow up committee is the umbrella coalition under which parties, Palestinian municipalities are gathered and this body needs to be restructured it needs to be demolished and restructured and and built from scratch and not built by the traditional leaders that we've we've probably bored of hearing time and time again for the last 20 30 years and and this body really needs to start working within the communities forming neighborhood communities working in every single city and in every single single village working in issues of violence and issues of education and also issues of gender equality and issues of identity and issues of national awareness. There are so many things to work on. But this traditional leadership that we have right now is absolutely incapable of leading this change Mm -hmm. because they think according to the traditional modes of thinking rather than thinking of how you can build from below and how you can build by sharing and by working with people, not just working for people or not just treating people as objects that need your help so this is absolutely essential to rebuild follow up committee to rebuild it democratically so that the members of this committee are not simply chosen because of their history or because of their experience or because they're men and, uh, and and to have it work and have it work in every, as I said, in every single village and in every single city. And I think, and, and we all know that this is going to be a very long term project. So this is not going to happen within two, three years. But if the rise of the right, and, and again, or let's say of the right of this type of right, because uh, I, I do believe that in terms of For us Palestinians, the Israeli government have always been right-wing. But if the rise of this kind of type of populist, uh, ethno-nationalist, religious right doesn't teach us anything, I really think it's going to be tragic for us. We really need to kind of have our reckoning as a people. And simultaneously, it's very important not to forget that we are part of a larger people. We're part, we're part and parcel of the Palestinian people, of the refugees, of Palestinians in West Bank and Gaza, of Palestinians in Jerusalem and in the diaspora. I think it's very important to break this inside and outside binary, because this binary, in my opinion, should not exist. It's very important to connect the issue that we face on a daily basis to our general struggle for national liberation, because I think the two cannot be separated.
1: Mm-hmm. Boudour Hassan is a Palestinian writer and legal researcher at the Jerusalem Legal Aid Center. She spoke to us from Jerusalem.
0: You can listen to the full interview on Voices of the Middle East and North Africa iTunes, where you can also subscribe to our show.
3: And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley.
0: Mira Nabulsi is our senior producer, our media partner, is a Status Hour podcast, and Jadalia Ezin. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio, or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at radio at gmail.com.
4: لمنحدرات الجبال المنتظر